Welcome to Clets Heads, the podcast about bilingual children. My name is Sharon Onsworth, linguist at Radboud University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, a mother of two bilingual children. In this episode of Clets Heads, I'm reviewing two books about bilingual parenting, together with fellow researcher Ludovica Serratrice and two parents, Maria Papantoniu and Sam Timmermans, the first father to be a guest on the podcast. Because we have so many guests, this episode is a bit longer than normal, but hopefully just on time for you to organise your reading for the holidays. One of the books is all about family language planning, and in Let's Clets, we talk to another parent, Daphne Vlachoyanis, about her experience writing and rewriting a family language plan. Keep listening to find out more. The first book we're going to discuss is by Adam Beck. It's called Bilingual Success Stories Around the World. Parents raising multilingual kids share their experiences and encouragement. It was self-published in 2021 and it's just under 250 pages long. It retails at €16.30 or £12.95 or $14.95. You can also get an ebook version, which is a bit cheaper. You might know Adam from the website Bilingual Monkeys, and he's also written a book, Maximise Your Child's Bilingual Ability, which we reviewed in the first season of Clets Heads. The goal of the book is to be a practical real-life roadmap to success when it comes to raising bilingual children. It contains 26 chapters, each telling the story of one bilingual family, and it's organised into three sections, early childhood years, the primary school years, and then teenage years and beyond. Each chapter starts with a description of the family, which languages the parents speak, what the parents do, where they live, and how old the children are. At the end of each chapter, there's an afterword by Beck reflecting on the family's story in light of the main theme of the book, what is success, or giving a short update on the family situation. Plus, there's also the contact details of one or both parents, for example, the social media handle or website. The first guest joining me to review this book is Sam Timmermans, father of two bilingual English-Dutch children here in the Netherlands. Before we hear what Sam thought of the book, he first tells us a bit about his bilingual family. In 2013, I got approached uh, by a UK uh, sport organisation to come uh, work in the UK. And at that time, uh, my wife and I and our seven-month-old daughter uh, well, had a bit of conversation and then decided, or me and my wife had a conversation, and then we decided to go to go on the adventure to to, to, to to cross the uh, the North Sea and 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 going to live in London, and um, we've lived there for uh, six and a half years. And during that time, our son uh, was born in 2015, so he's lived almost five years in the UK from birth, and, sh- and my daughter from a slightly more than a year to seven and a half. Um, and uh, in three years ago, we uh, we moved back uh, to the Netherlands, so we went from a situation where. Dutch was the minority language in our little family and every everything outside of that was English uh, to now Dutch is everywhere and uh, and and we try to keep as much English in our in our in our family life uh, uh, which is uh, which is a new challenge but uh, uh, the the foundation that they've got in English is is, uh, is strong enough to uh, 
to keep adding bits to there and then keep them going. Yeah. Okay. Interesting situation. And I think also situation that um, that we see a, a bit, at least in the book. So um, let's move to the book then. What did you think of it? I think one of the advantages of the book is the is the structure of the book and the way you can navigate the book. So it's uh, it's twenty six different stories. Uh, so you and and every story has got a, a good introduction which outlines what the story is about, what languages are related to it. In the back of the book, you've got an overview of every story and which languages are related to the story yeah. and where uh, where the, uh, the the story is situated. So it helped me to um, to navigate the book and to I, sh- I first started with a couple of, of of stories and then realized okay I can just I can navigate a story I can skip a story or I can I can I can go to the story that's most applicable to my situation and as I went on into the book I, I, I started reflecting more and more and it, it just the, the value of the book was built over the over the course of reading more and more and 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 doing more reflections. Um, so that's a, that was a good that was a good point, a strong point of the book. Were there any other strong points? Um, yes, I thought the um, the reflection of the of Adam Beck, the, the the author, at the at the end of each story adds adds another layer of of, of yeah. perspective. Adds another perspective. So he's reflecting often on the story, telling a bit more about where the family went after after or after a few years, or pointing out a certain dynamic that's playing out and 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 how that's often a challenge or how you can yeah. overcome it, uh, where a certain idea went and how successful it was. Or the other bit was helpful was the, the stories are categorized in preschool, primary school and teenage years, which which were also helpful to navigate and because we are probably towards the back end of primary school years, towards teenage yeah. years. And uh, so those stories, I was I was more... When I started the book, I started with those preschool years, and I was thinking, actually, uh, where, where are the where are the stories when when there's a ten year old or a twelve year old kind of what? And then I navigated towards those stories. That, All right, these are these are these are interesting things now for us to consider. And probably a point that I reflected on, which uh, was that I don't know if you can call that a, a weak point, but it's quite a significant part of the stories are based in the in the US. Um, mm-hmm. And therefore, that might bias some uh, s- some stories in relation to mm-hmm. the infrastructure or the facilities or the ability to kind of uh, sp- speak a minority language. But there and there are there are other stories of other languages, a few in in Europe and and some others. But predominantly, they are based in the US. Yeah, yeah. And um, what did you think about the the writing style and you know how it was written? It seems quite accessible. Yeah, well, I, th- I th- yes, yes, uh, it was easy to read. Yeah, I th- it was like I said, accessible to 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 me. It also was pr- it probably helped in terms of being very busy and kind of having lots of things in my mind. I could still engage with the book relatively easy. Yeah, yeah. So the the book, the aim of the book is to be a a practical roadmap to success. Do you think it's achieved its aim? Well, it's probably not necessarily a roadmap as a, as a whole, but it provides a lot of components that you can create your own roadmap. So it's not there's not there's no yeah. silver bullets to kind of to get to yeah, get yeah. to an endpoint with with uh, bilingual uh, children or uh, children. But but it it what it did for me is it confirmed things that we have done in the past and and where we've the journey we've been on. It made me more conscious about the effort kind of to put in and to to remain conscious about what little things 
all things add up and all things build towards that foundation and yeah uh, as well as new ideas on on what to do to to keep sparking their enthusiasm for actively engaging in in the language yeah yeah i mean even even for me yeah though i mean i say even for me i just mean you know i have a podcast about bilingualism i do research on bilingualism i'm quite uh quite up on things all, all things bilingual but also for me, there were a few things in there. I thought, oh, yeah, I've never thought about that. Like, you know, actively asking friends who, um, who are native speakers of English or normally speak English but can also speak Dutch, actually saying to them, please don't speak Dutch to the kids. Speak English to the kids, right? Getting them on board as well. That's not something I'd ever thought of doing. Yeah. But it's definitely something that I think I will, uh, I will apply and do uh, if and when I need to. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of lots of practical stuff in there, isn't there? Lots of practical stuff, and also the the contact details at the end of each story. I think provide a sense of uh, I can pick up the phone or an email to someone straight away who knows about my situation and 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 has done something that inspired me or or, or I'm I'm keen to know more about. Uh, so there's a, there's probably that element as well as a bit of a sense of community time. There's, yeah. there, there is people out there struggling with the same kind of effort to to keep to keep going uh whilst the results might not yet been been uh, been seen yeah 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 i like that idea center center community do you think the book's uh suitable for all different kinds of parents yeah i, th- I think definitely for for people that are in a situation like this or are are uh of the intent to have bilingualism or multilingualism in their yeah. family situation yeah they will probably search for something like this and they will find this really practical and really useful and really, really helpful. So what's your final assessment then? You've got five stars. Five stars. The um, Yeah, I went to four stars. Kind of the, I think it's a really good book to, the, the practicalities, the way you can navigate it. Like I said, the sense of community, the ability to, to get confirmation, the ability to reflect on things, the ability to come back to it in, in six weeks time and, have, and read a chapter and, and get inspired again. Uh, I think that's really helpful. The, the 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 thing that probably stuck with me of something how 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 accessible is it or how, how kind of the the America kind of situation as well as the 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 effort or the or, or the when people are reading it that are the start of the journey. There are success stories and the people put a lot of effort in, into them and and they have got also uh, resources to them available to have like a Russian school in the local area or so if you not have those resources on the one end you might get might put you off a bit right might discourage you I think is that the word you're looking for on the one way it could discourage you but on the on the other hand I read it I worked through that because there's plenty of examples where people fail 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 and and still those little failures add up to kind yeah. of enough of a foundation for their child to do something so i think the main message of the of the book around kind of you need to keep being persistent if you build that little community around you i think it will be easier because you've you've got a bit of a network to to fall back on because if you can't put the effort in then maybe grandma can put the effort in or the neighbor yeah, can put yeah. the effort in that day and that will and that will help to keep to keep the threat going of being uh, exposed to the, the language great Thanks to Sam for making the time to read this book and share his insights with us, especially given the fact that he was in the middle of moving house when we did the recording. We'll talk more about how moving country can impact how you approach raising bilingual children towards the end of the episode in Let's Clets. First, though, we talk to our next guest, and that's my colleague Ludo 
Seratrice. Ludo is Professor of Bimultilingualism at the University of Reading in the UK. Here's what she thought of Adam Beck's book. Yeah, so it was uh, very interesting to see such a wide spectrum of um, what people nowadays call their lived experiences of bilingualism. Uh Uh, It's certainly very international, um, so it really sort of looks at families, you know, in, in in many different settings around the world. Um, one thing I, I would say, so that as you were um, saying earlier, Sharon, at the beginning of each story, the um, there is a, a useful, you know, bullet point introduction to the family, and, uh, and it's very interesting to see that Adam always writes um, what the parents do for a living. So that, that's very interesting to see, and also contextualizes really the kind of families that we're looking at. Um, and I think this is something yeah. that he also says in his foreword. Um, uh, that, you know, he tried to be as inclusive as possible. But when you read, so what, what I did actually read through all of the stories, just reading the, you know, the initial blurb at the beginning, just to get a sense of what kind of families they were. And they are a very special set of families, right? Because, you know, they tend to be very educated families. A lot of them, not many, but a lot, quite a few, I would say, um, have a very um, active interest in bilingualism. Some of them maintain websites or have their own podcasts or have published something. Um, so clearly these are very intentional bilingual, multilingual parents. Um, so having said that, there are very many different situations of parents trying to facilitate their children bilingualism, multilingualism in very many different contexts, you know, from um, single parent families to um, parents that decide to use, for example, a language that is not their native language, but because they want to express yeah you know, um, their children turn out, maybe they're very proficient in family, you know, wanted to raise their children speaking English, but actually they were not native English speakers, but, you know, they were trying to do that. So, so that's an interesting take, uh, you know, to families that have got a common language, to families that have got, you know, two different languages, they're yet in a different context, families that, you know, travel the world and they're exposed to many different languages, families with like one child, families with many children. So I think it's really useful, I think. And this is, I would say, a very powerful parent-to-parent experience. Um, And I always find, you know, um, that when you're getting the kind of direct and mediated thinking like, this is what happened to me, this is how we dealt um, with the issues, I think it's a very powerful thing for parents um, to hear rather than just hearing from a, you know, a researcher saying, this is what the evidence says, trust me, that, that's what happens. When you're hearing to somebody yeah, who yeah. through it, um, I think, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very powerful in that respect. And I would say that, you know, the book is called Bilingual Success Stories, but the families are very honest about the, you know, what they call failures or difficulties that inevitably they encounter along the road. And, you know, often it's, a, you know, an up and down journey, you know, clearly sort of, you know, grow up and you know maybe a child that was very comfortable speaking you know a language that is not the societal language maybe they wouldn't get a bit older they become I don't know maybe embarrassed or they don't want to be single out so you know they're they're very honest about that and and I think that's also refreshing um, for other parents also a lot of very useful tips I guess you know because when you hear what other people have done, I think it is um, a very, you know, a very, and I think, you know, I'm sure yourself, you know, you could have been in one of those stories, I suppose, you know, because again, the kind of, 
you know families that that uh, that are in the story in the book also um probably speak to maybe your own experience and, and you know did the big speak to you perhaps you know in that respect as well definitely yeah i thought even you know um i really enjoyed reading it actually like you said it's very powerful when you hear stories from other parents and hear how they did things adam himself often talks about intentionality so really you know because there is also i think you know in people that don't know what being a bilingual family is like this idea that you know if you've got a parent that speaks another language the child will learn that language and we all know that actually raising bilingual multilingual children takes a lot of effort yeah so do you think the book achieved its goal then of really being a you know a practical roadmap to success do you think it is inspirational enough to all different kinds of parents or is it you know, I could imagine also feeling a little bit overwhelmed, like, oh, my goodness, this person developed their own materials for their child. Like, I can't do that. Uh, how did you feel when you read it? You're right. I mean, but I would say that maybe as a parent, I would read it as I as a series of resources. I don't maybe some people might feel I don't want to say intimidated, but but you can also take it. I think, oh, OK, there are people out there that have already done this kind of work. I can just I don't have to do it myself. I can just go and look what, you know, what they've done. Um, and I also like that, that, that in, I think most of the stories, if not all of them, there was an afterword. And sometimes, obviously, because these stories were collected over the years and obviously, you know, children grow up, as we were saying earlier, where these children are at. And, you know, sometimes, you know, they've kept it up. Sometimes, you know, there have been a little bit of a hiccup and, you know, what the parents have done. And um, so there was also a, a nice, a nice thing to see in a way. And also just really gives you this sense of the you know that the bilingualism is a very dynamic kind of concept what i also liked in in as you were saying at the beginning that it's divided into um early years primary school and then you know teenage years and i think you know uh, most parents know that motivating teenagers sometimes can be really hard because obviously inevitably you know the most important people are not mom and dad anymore it's their peers and yeah if the peers are monolingual children speaking the societal language it's hard and um, so so I think again as a parent you can probably pick and choose and then if you've got a young child you maybe you might want to see oh what awaits me you know later on and you can you know bear in mind some pointers for for what's going to happen next and maybe preempt some of the issues potentially yeah. Yeah. So there's something in it for all parents, really, right? Whatever age your your children are. So we talked about it from the perspective of a parent. Now, the book's not intended for researchers, but obviously I've asked you to uh, yeah. to join me on the podcast because of your expertise as a researcher in bilingualism. What did you think about it from that viewpoint as you read it? Yeah, so it was very light on research side of things. So I would say um, that there was, you know, it was really about the the family's experience, and that it was. I do think there was the the intention. There was no attempt really in trying to bring back what the experience of these families um, is to any research evidence to to that extent and I think maybe it was deliberate perhaps you're thinking you know I'm just going to put out stories interviews with parents you know just talking parent to parent deciding not I'm sure Adam is very well aware of you know research around bilingualism but I think it was a deliberate choice to do that yeah 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 I mean in all fairness the the book wasn't set out to do that but there was nothing in it where you thought oh that's that doesn't chime with the with the research findings right um, most of the time, I would say no. Like I said, you know, uh, you know, occasionally there there may have been cases in which. So sometimes I can't remember exactly which story, but um, 
Um, and this is something that I might sort of talk about again later on, you know, when people talk about the, I don't know, cognitive advantages of bilingualism and, you know, and I, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the researcher, I always bristle. Um, you know, I've always done that when people talk and really up the, you know, this bilingual cognitive advantage. Because for me, like the bilingual advantage is that you speak two languages. Uh, you know, there is yeah. very controversial yeah. evidence, as we know now, about these things. And I'm always very wary when people big this up and say, like, you know, teach your children two or more languages because of their brain potential. Yeah. All right, then. So let's wrap it up for this one. So how many stars would you give this book out of five? You've got five. Five. Oh, hard. Um, maybe four out of five, because it would have been perhaps useful to have, I don't know, I don't want to say a disclaimer, but perhaps, uh, you know, um, at the end of the book, some pointers perhaps to research or to, you know, sub, you know to linking some of the themes that, arise from the discussions and for somebody who might be interested in following that up um, to just to point them in the right direction potentially um, and again you know reading this as a researcher maybe a parent wouldn't I mean some parents might like that some don't care that much um, yeah it's a, it could have been an option I'd say potentially um, but, but again you know like I said I don't think it was his intention to to say, what does the research say about bilingualism? It was really, so in that respect, I think the, the book was very successful, you know, in giving a voice to parents for other parents, for sure. Yeah, and I really enjoyed reading it. So great job. Good. All right, let's leave that one there then. And um, we're going to move now to our second book. Bilingual Families, a Family Language Planning Guide. And this also came out in 2021. But it's quite a thin book, 100, just over 100 pages, published by Multilingual Matters. And it retails at uh, €12.95 in uh, Euro world, um, just under $15 US dollars and £12. Um, It's written by Eowyn Chrisfield. She's the founder and principal of Chrisfield Educational Consulting and senior lecturer in teaching English as a second or other language at Oxford Brookes University in the UK. And she has developed her own family language planning program over the years. She used to live in the Netherlands. So I know her from when she uh, she lived here. Um, she, you might know her from Raising Bilingual Children, her blog. She's also a mother of uh, three uh, multilingual children. The goal of the book then is to provide a guide for parents on how to raise a bilingual child using this family language planning approach. The audience then is parents, but I think the book will be useful for educators and other professionals working with bilingual families. But you can tell me what you think in a minute. It's organized in um, three sections. The first is really about the research and the, the myths about bilingualism. So facts and fiction, everything you need to know, basically, about uh, what we know about bilingualism from the research. In the second part, she introduces this idea of a family language plan and talks about, you know, the need to think about goals and then goes into actually writing the plan. And then in the final selection, selection, final section, that's really about um, supporting the family language plan. So how are you going to make it work? Um, so like talk about talking to the kids about it, talking to other key people, knowing when to get help. And this all leads to what she calls her building blocks of success. If you want to know more about that, you can listen to the very first episode actually of Clet's Heads in English, because that was AON talking about, uh, this very topic at the end of each chapter. Then there are useful summaries of the content and the concrete suggestions for strategies that parents can use and worksheets for parents to complete throughout. So. 
Ludo, what did you think of this one? Fantastic. So for me, it's the ultimate guide to raising bilingual children. And I loved it because it's so well written, so accessible and so well research informed. Yeah. It's the book we've been waiting for for a long time. I wanted to write, you know, now when I get it, she's like, oh, maybe I should write. And I'm thinking like, I don't need to. Ewen has done it. So jumping ahead, I'm going to give this six stars out of five. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, no, it's fantastic. um, I think it really brings together research in such an accessible and nuanced way. You know, she's very careful, you know, and every time uh, whenever there is, um, you know, to to deconstruct this myth, like, you know, earlier, you know, again, there is this big, big myth about earlier, the better. I mean, it depends, really. Evidence for this on the ground, you know, children that go to, you know, introducing modern foreign languages into primary school children, these children do five years of learning the days of the week and colours and, you know, the kind of stuff that a child aged 11 can do in a day. Right. So it's very, you know, if you're then if a child is in an immersion context, it's a very different thing. But I think, you know, it's kind of things that can be used, you know, for example, at policy level to introduce, uh, like I said, you know, a foreign language in primary school saying, oh, the advantage of bilingualism, they do like an hour a week. And I'm thinking, actually, not that helpful. Again, I think what really emerges from um, Eowyn's approach on the um, family language plan, which is really, you know, what we know, family language policy in the literature, is intentionality again. So I think intentionality really comes across in, in both books. Um, and also very interesting that she looks at cases in which parents might decide not to bring a language into the family, uh, potentially, or, or bring, you know, only two or three that are available. Um, again, this idea that children are like sponges and they can learn as many languages as they can. And yes, it is true that in societies that are multilingual, where everybody speaks four or five languages, I don't know, in India, in Africa, people will, to some extent, use these four languages, you know, five languages, um, and with people that also do that. But if you're a child that is in a family where, you know, two parents that already speak two different languages, you're going to school in yet another language, and then you want to introduce a fourth, there are, you know, and there are a limited number of speakers that you have access to, you know, there are also a finite numbers of hours, um, you know, finite number of hours in a day, and we all know that input matters. So you also have to be realistic on what you can actually achieve. And also what I really like about the family language plan is thinking about these realistic goals and what matters. And she doesn't only talk about language because obviously also being an educationist, uh, talking about, you know, the role of school and of literacy Mm. is also really important. Um, And and thinking about, you know, are you going to have a child that is going to be able to read in in both languages? Does it matter if the script is different, for example? Uh, When do you introduce literacy in the heritage language? Should it become, you know, before or after? Does it matter? Is it going to be conflict with the societal language? So really talking about all of the different aspects, you know, what kind of language the parents will talk to each other, to the child, what about the siblings? What about, and also, as you were saying, something that came up perhaps in the other book as well, bringing in, you know, in this, in, in supporting this family language plan, it's, you know, you always say it takes a village to raise a bilingual child, you know, a child, you know, in the, in the case of bilingual children, perhaps even more so, it becomes even, even more obvious that that is the case because you do have to 
people, you know, your child's teachers, um, you know, parents, extended family. Sometimes people have their own opinions about bilingualism and sometimes they're very strong opinions. Um, one of the other things that I, again, similar to the other books, I think this book is also written for a certain kind of parent. And it was interesting to see, yeah. perhaps because of Eowyn's own experience, she often talks about expats. Um, and, you know, some people could think like, oh, what's the difference between an expat and an immigrant, right? Like, you know, I may consider myself an expat to this country, but other people say, no, you're an immigrant. You know, what's that? So it was an interesting um, choice of words, I thought. Uh, and also clearly she speaks to an uneducated audience. And it was very interesting for me to see, for example, when you have to bring other people to support your language plan or when you're confronted with um, professionals like teachers or, I don't know, your GP, your health visitor, who may a lot of the time not be very well informed about bilingualism. I think this is true all over the world. And I see this, you know, I don't know what it's like in the Netherlands, but certainly in the UK, really, you know, information about language development in, in its own right and about bilingualism tends to be pretty minimal, really, I would say. Um, and therefore, you know, the suggestion that she made, she said, like, you can go, you know, to your GP and say, if they challenge you about raising your bilingual choice, so like, actually, the research says X, Y, and Z, would you like me to share some resources with you? And it takes a very confident parent to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. So indeed, it's it's maybe also um, for the more well-educated uh, parent, right? Um, but what about for professionals, right? It's aimed at yes. parents, but I suspect it would be useful for professionals too. What do you think? Definitely. So I was actually thinking of, I mean, this is already on my, um, as for last year, my reading list for my course on multilingualism and language impairment across the lifespan at the University of Reading. So this is a resource that I also point my uh, speech and language therapy trainee students to. Um, because again, there is a section at the end also on, you know, when should you seek advice if you're concerned about your bilingual, multilingual child's language development? Again, a very difficult question to answer, even for professionals. And even in the, you know, speech and language therapy professions, in the teaching profession, there is still, like we were saying, very little information about it. And to be honest, still relatively little research-informed evidence. You know, there is an evidence base that is growing, but it's not black yeah. and white you know it's very nuanced yeah. it's you know we, we have tools they're developing but they're still not very widely adopted in the profession but what is it really important is to um really bring to the attention of these professionals like in a way like the do's and don'ts like the kind of questions you would want to ask parents the kind of things you would want to bear, bear in mind when you you know somebody comes to you with a child um who may or may not may not you know have um, language difficulties that are not just you know lack of exposure to the language right you just not yeah. you know yeah. exposed to that language you just not had much opportunity so so yeah so i definitely i think this would be a fantastic resource for professionals as well certainly at the level one yeah so uh, i mean you already said you're going to give it six out of five but uh, are there any are there any weak points to to the book um 
Well, like I said, you know, maybe, but but this is the problem. I mean, you're writing books. So who's going to read the book? Well, yeah, I suppose if you if you're going to actively seek out a book on this topic, then that probably automatically makes you have certain characteristics as a parent, right? So um, maybe we should just take that as a given. Yes, exactly. So I don't think it's um, I mean, a weakness of the book. It's just like a systemic issue in a way of like you know, and I think it's a problem that we all have, right? Because obviously, in a way, and oftentimes. I don't know, maybe there is, I know you've got parents on, on the podcast as well. So I don't know, for example, whether, you know, you're kind of preaching to the converted, you know, in a way, I'm sure there is a lot of information that these parents, that it was new to these parents potentially, but I'm thinking they're already in their kind of mindset. How do you reach people? Yeah. They don't have the kind of information. How do you, you know, potentially... I don't want to say change people's minds, but I mean, you know, give them a way to make an informed choice. Because, of course, we all know that there are yeah. bilingual parents that, for one reason or another, do not bring up their children bilingually. And they may have very good reasons to do so. But I fear sometimes when I do speak to these families, the reason why that happened, not because it was a deliberate choice, is just because they didn't have the information that they might have needed to make their choice, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And in that sense, I think this book is great, right? Because I, I think, you know, everybody is free to choose whatever they want. And, and that's part and parcel of parenting. And it, whether we're talking about bilingualism, watching telly or eating sweets, uh, but it's important to make informed choices. That's also, I think this book is so great because you can make informed choices. I wanted to give a shout out actually to the Planting Languages Project because we've talked about that previously in the, in the podcast, but it's, I think, a, a, way in which the 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 approach that Eowyn puts forward here with the family language planning has been made more accessible to different kinds of parents um um and it's also they've developed materials that professionals can use when working with parents um so I'll put the link in the show notes but that's something to go and look at if you think in you know based on what we were just talking about like the kind of parent who was going to read this uh, maybe you know you think mm, I'm not so sure. You can also look at the Planting Languages um, website. They have resources based on the same kinds of uh, background material. Another thing that I just wanted to mentally say because I was looking at my notes here and I should have flicked my page to the, the last page. One other thing that I really liked as well about you know conversations and also involving children um in the family language yeah. and you know children have agency clearly you know a five or a ten year old has got more agency than a one-year-old obviously and um, but you know also explain because I think I seem to remember again I think it was in this book um a child who had stopped speaking Russian I think it was because it was they thought it was a secret language because they only spoke Russian with their mom and every time somebody came into the room they the mom stopped speaking Russian because you know if other, these other people didn't speak the language so they just thought like, oh, okay it's a secret language maybe I should speak in this language so you know things like that yeah yeah I think uh, I like that too as well not only talking to children talking to your partner talking to your family talking to your family in law wider family your friends a community like and not not making assumptions about what people think but actually check you know first checking whether your assumptions are actually Right, and enlisting their help to uh, to help you make you know to go back to the first book, make a success of your of your bilingual uh, journey. All right, so it's a it's a definite thumbs up uh, for this book then from you. <laughs> yes. Thanks also to Ludo for taking the time to share her thoughts on these two books with us. So Ludo was very positive about Ayo and Chrisfield's book, 
What did our parent think? For this book, I spoke to Maria Papantonio. She first told us about her own bilingual family situation. I um, live in Reading in the UK. I've been living here for um, 11 years. Um, I'm originally from Greece. I came to the UK to do my master's initially for a year. But then, you know, 11 years later, I'm still here. I'm in Holland 21 years later, so... (laughs) (laughs) I've met my um, Greek husband since I've um, came to the UK. He's been here for about 20 years and... um, we now have um, a five-year-old um, who is bilingual, we're all bilingual, um, and we kind of try to be um, strict in a way, using Greek at home and then um, obviously English at work. And then um, our little one started um, school this uh-huh. year. Obviously, she was at nursery before. Now she started um, reception, so kind of proper primary school, if you like. Um, and she now kind of speaks English. She learns to um, to read English and um you know, writing all in English. So we always try to keep the balance between, you know, home language and then um, the the outside language um, in the UK. Yeah. So that's kind of the background. So I was really interested to to take part in this um, and read the book and understand how we do things and how we could do things differently as well. Uh-huh. So what did you think of the book? I loved it. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was a very kind of easy read um, and especially for a parent um, who doesn't really have a background um, into kind of multilingualism in terms of uh, research and expertise. I mean, I did study primary education back in Greece, but it was a very different setting. And, you know, 15 years ago when I studied, there was not really multilingualism in Greece. Um, Things are different now. But obviously, I didn't have the background, so I thought this book is is um, really easy to read. Um, it's very simple, and you know, um, it's written in a very clear way. Um, so it does help parents to kind of make that start to helping uh, raise bilingual kids. Um, I like the fact that there were many examples and scenarios of other bilingual families, so I can kind of mm-hmm. align myself to them, um, and also. The fact that you provided some practical advice on um, on things that we as parents can do um, to help our children with the journey. Um, so yeah, overall, I really enjoyed it. Great. And so now your child's uh, five years old, right? So I'm interested to know whether you think would you have liked to have read it earlier? Is it still useful now, even though your child is five? Because I think when you read the book, you know, family language planning think okay well you know maybe it's too late for us now how did you feel about that reading it now as a parent of a five-year-old I did think that I should have read it earlier um (laughs) I did think of that quite a few times especially with the family goals planning but it was really interesting to um to read about the myths things that I thought were true actually they're just myths uh, but it was quite reassuring uh, the fact that we did certain things right if you like that we insisted on using greek and my daughter started um talking during lockdown so obviously she was not a nursery so she started talking simply in greek to the point that i was thinking oh will she be able to communicate a nursery once she goes back and she's already two years old will she be able to you know to understand simple concepts um and then I realized that, yes, he was able, after a week, he was able to talk and stuff. It was just me thinking that it might not be the case. Um, but yeah, I think I should have read it earlier. 
But I'm glad that I was kind of from the very first moment that she was born, I thought, yeah, we're going to stick to Greek and then English will come when she goes to school. Yeah, so it was, it was reassuring then that the, the choices you'd made were the right ones yes. for you. Um, but there was still stuff in it then for you, even though, you know, your child is already five. You did think there was plenty of stuff that you could get out of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even with things that, um, you know, with writing and literacy um, in the second language, you know, there were certain tips that I can use for later on because my uh, my daughter cannot write or read in Greek as yet. We wanted her yeah. to establish the first language. Um, and obviously, she now learns English at school. We'd like to establish that first and then move to, to Greek. But there was mm-hmm. kind of certain useful things and insights about the second language and how she can write, when she can start, you know, learning and writing, how much is enough. Obviously, that depends on every family. So there's certainly useful things for me, although I read it quite late. And um, so what do you think were then the strong points of the book? Um, the strongest point for me was the organisation and the length of the book. Uh, it gave all the information and insight and insights that I needed without really having to go through lots of pages. Mm. Given that I'm not an expert and simply wanted to get some basic initial um, information about raising bilingual kids, um, I felt that this book was just right. Um, It gives the option to explore the subject further, you know, with additional resources or, you know, the bibliography, and which will probably help me at the next stage. But yeah, I think the length was perfect. Um, I also like the summary bit at the end of each chapter. Uh, yeah. I love a good summary. You know, sometimes you might be <laughs> some important, you know, points, yeah. but then have, you know, going back, then it's like good, to, you know, to, to stay focused. I think my favorite bit was the um, the chapter demystifying uh, bilingualism. I was surprised to read, you know, some of the things I thought were true are actually myths. Can you give an example, actually, of something that you thought was true that turned out to be a myth? Oh, yes. About um, multilingual kids um, have a delay in in the age they start um, talking. That was kind of Uh a theme that I used to hear quite a lot. You know, yeah, if they're bilingual, they might start talking quite later than monolingual kids. And I thought that was true. Um, it didn't happen with my daughter, so I thought, okay, it might be an exception. So, so yeah, I was really, um, really interested to to read that. For for those of you who've not read the book, but maybe you probably are going to go read the book after all these positive reviews. <laughs> you know, it's uh, you're, uh, a bilingual child might be uh, slower to start talking in one of the languages, but usually when you look at both of the languages, they fall within the normal range for monolingual children because mm. you know, uh, also monolingual children vary very much in uh, the age at which they actually start talking just like kids vary in the age at which they start walking and the age at which uh, they get their first teeth Mm. Um, so there's quite a lot of variation in children in general Um, and often with bilingual children as with many things bilingualism is the the scapegoat the reason for things that maybe aren't what certain people consider normal but yeah well that's great to hear then so it really you really enjoyed the um the demystifying the bilingualism so that the bit with the the more research background about what's facts what's what what's fiction um any other strong points before we move on to any potential weak points i think they were kind of the main strong points for me i can go you know on and on but i thought i'd summarize kind of the key ones and i had to try hard to find some weak points i think i did but they're not very very weak <laughs> okay tell us i think 
I'm not quite sure if it's a weak point or just a personal preference, but for me, having the glossary of terms at the beginning of the book, um, you used a few um, terms and abbreviations um, throughout the book, like the um, OPOL, for example, um, yeah. one parent, one language. So obviously I wasn't familiar with the term and I had to kind of go back um, at the end of the book. I mean, it's not a huge deal, but as a reader, I would prefer it to have it at the beginning, kind of the key points that you'd probably use um, mm-hmm. throughout the book. Uh, so that's one. And then perhaps the further resources section and the worksheets that you have at the end of its um, chapter. Sometimes, maybe because I read the book quite late and it wasn't super applicable to me, I would prefer to see them at the end, at the appendix, um, alongside, you know, other resources that you've had. Yeah. So for you then, the book achieved its goal. Absolutely. Um, especially, you know, for me as a parent, I think, yeah, it has um, it helped me understand more about um, multilingual kids, um, how they think and feel about being multilingual. One thing that I really enjoyed was that provide some advice without really judging or presenting the right yeah. or the wrong family opinions, uh, because, you know, I suspect not everyone is a pro or you know um, promoting uh, bilingualism as much as we do but yeah I like that it wasn't judging for certain um, decisions yeah 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 for sure and you know nobody's a pro at the start I'm not sure anybody feels like a pro at the end either to the extent that there is an end but yeah I, I agree I do think it's great that it's not non-judgmental so for you then really you think it'd be suitable for for any parents who are looking into finding out more information about raising bilingual children I think it is because it's um, it's quite simple and it doesn't require to have any um, background knowledge um, or you to do any kind of background research you can just get on and read the book um so yeah i think it's it's a great resource let's wrap it up then i'm going to ask you to tell us what your final assessment is so how many stars out of five you've got five how many would you give the book i would give five um i really enjoyed it um so yeah i would suggest everyone to buy the book and um and read it it's a great resource an easy one um, especially if you don't have too much time to go through, you know, long books and, you know, uh, massive resources. So it's a kind of easy book. I read it on a bus. Um, so, yeah, people can, can do that. Um, so, yeah, five stars for me. Another ringing endorsement then of Eowyn Chrisfield's book on family language planning. What did I think of these two books? I completely share the opinions of our three guests If you're looking for plenty of real-life examples and stories from other families, then you should read Adam Beck's book. But if you'd rather have more scientific background and at the same time concrete instructions on how to approach bilingual parenting, then I would go for Eowyn Chrisfield's book. And I think that if your budget allows, then with both books, you'll have a nice combination of theory and practice. Thanks to Adam, Eowyn and Multilingual Matters, we're able to give away one copy of each book. We'll be doing this via our Instagram page. So if you'd like to win a copy of either of these books, then hurry on over to Insta to take part. This promotion runs between July 15th and 31st. So it's really for the early birds listening to the episode as soon as it's dropped. We're on Insta at Clet's Heads. 
We're going to wrap up this episode now by talking to another parent, Daphne. She's going to tell us what it's actually like to write a family language plan. Let's let's. My name is Daphne Vlachoyanis. I currently live in Athens and I have three children who are aged nine, six and two. And at home, our languages are French, Greek and English. Welcome uh, to the podcast, Daphne. Um, We invited you on to talk about uh, writing a family language plan because I know that you have written and I think rewritten one. So we've spoken about that a few times on the podcast already and then also just now in the review of uh, Eowyn Chrisfield's book. And so is as I've been asked also by listeners to, you know, what do you actually do when you write the family language plan? How do you go about it? So it's great to have somebody on with uh, that first-hand experience. So first of all, then, what made you decide to write a family language plan in the first place? What made us decide as a family is that we both, my husband and I both have uh, essentially two first languages. And we were living in the Netherlands at the time. So then there was a fifth language in the community. And Uh so we knew that five languages would be too much to have sort of flying around the house. And so we needed someone to guide us and put a system in place. Me, My first languages are English and French. I I do speak Greek, but it's not one of my first languages. Uh, My husband's first languages are German and Greek. So a a complicated uh, language situation, let's say. And then I guess you had choices that you you thought you needed to make. And so was this before the first child was born or did you, at what point did you decide, okay? Uh, Yes, this was when I was pregnant with our first, with our daughter. I was, yeah, I was pregnant and we were thinking about which languages we wanted to speak with the baby and we both couldn't decide. So I couldn't decide between French and English and my husband couldn't decide between German and Greek and um, Awen had come to the International Criminal Court where I used to work and she had done a presentation there. What Awen did is she sat with us for about two hours and she asked us all kinds of questions about all of our languages, um, the importance of each of the languages for our heritage, for our family, for our social, social situation, for our identities. Um, and then she, she, helped us to figure out what the three uh, most important languages, let's say, were for the early mm-hmm. years. So for the first three to four years of the children's lives. Mm-hmm. And the way she did that was she said, okay, language of schooling, basically language of schooling or creche, right? Language of community yeah. and family heritage. So for us, that left us with... Uh, Dutch at the time, uh, Greek and English. So those were the three that we decided to go with for the first three years. And her advice was actually quite unorthodox in the sense that she said, okay, once the children start school, which we knew would have been in English, right? We put them in a Dutch creche, but then they started at the British school when they were three and a half. She said, once Mm -hmm. the children start school, if you want to, me, you can stop speaking to them in English because the school will take over. You can hand over the English baton to the school, if you will. And then you can switch to French. And when she told me this, I thought, okay, that's that's not going to work. That's, you know, I'm going to have this whole relationship with them in English for three and a half years. Mm-hmm. And how am I going to switch over to French? And so I was quite skeptical. And I said, well, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but I'm going to try it. And I'm going to at least 
give them English for the first three and a half years so that they don't yeah. start school with no English, right? That was mm -hmm. the idea. So when my daughter started school at three and a half years old, I quite quickly switched over to French. And it, it, I was surprised at how quickly she followed suit. I had a conversation with her as you as, as detailed a conversation as you have with a three and a half year old. I mean, I had, you know, I, I remember very clearly saying when she first started school saying, do you want to switch to French with mommy? Do you want to speak French with mommy? And she said, no. And so I left it for a couple of months and I thought, okay, maybe it's too many changes. She just started school. I left it for a couple of months yeah, and yeah. I revisited the subject a few months later, asked her again. And at that point she said, yes, that would be fun. Uh -huh. So I said, okay, here we go. And so what I did in the beginning is I started sort of simultaneously translating everything. I would say, you know, tu veux boire? You want to drink something? Uh, tu veux ton jouet? You want your, uh, your toy? And after a couple of weeks of doing that, she started slowly answering me in French. And then eventually I switched over and yeah, now we speak 100% in French together. Now it was, wow. you know, five years, six years later. Yeah. But yeah, it worked. It worked quickly. So it's really about thinking about what languages are in your lives, what they mean to you, what the future might look like for your children because of where you live, but also what you want the future to look like uh, for whatever reason that might be. Right. That's that's what it is. It's, it's like being very conscious about what you're doing. It's definitely being very conscious about what you're doing. And it's, yeah, and it's, if, I mean, for some families, there's an, it's an obvious decision, right? Because there's, you know, not that many languages that are available. But if you, if you are a family that has um, several, or, you know, three, four, or even five languages that are sort of flying around, then yes, it is a very conscious decision. And one that takes into account factors that I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that much on my own. So, and what kind of factors were those then? Things like uh, the community language. So, for example, a lot of a lot of expats in the Netherlands will say, "Oh, well, we're only here for a couple of years, or we don't know how long we're staying." And anyway, everybody speaks English, so the kids don't really need Dutch. And it's easy to get sucked into that way of thinking. And I think that um, it's absolutely necessary for the children's well-being to at least have a basic or intermediate level of whatever local language uh, yeah. they're living in, even mm -hmm. if they're staying for only a few years. And I saw that very clearly with my children. We didn't know how long we were staying. We ended up leaving uh, just a few months ago, actually. So we left when the children were, you know, eight, um, almost six and two. And certainly for my eight-year-old, but also for my six-year-old, I saw definite sort of emotional, uh, social benefits to them being able to speak an intermediate level of Dutch so that they didn't feel like outsiders, you know, for whatever, for yeah. however long they were there, they didn't feel like outsiders. They were able to talk to kids on the playground. Now we left, probably they're going to lose it at some point, but it doesn't matter. That's not, that's not really the point. The point is while we were there, they felt at home. And I, I really believe that it, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have felt as at home had they been unable to communicate with, you know, the neighbors and the yeah. shopkeepers and the other kids on the playground. And they had really just been the expat kids. Yeah. Well, actually, our last episode was just about growing older, either as a child or as an adult. Uh, and what, what that means for languages you, you maybe knew and don't use anymore. Um, yeah. So 
this is a good one to listen to for those who haven't done so already if you're interested in that topic so you've got the plan then you mentioned that you know you were maybe a little bit skeptical about parts of it but you managed to stick to it was it was it easy to implement that plan you know often we have nice ideas and we think on paper they look good but actually the reality is a little different how was it for you I found it um I found it to be a lot of fun but it wasn't I wouldn't call it easy it was it was quite some work but I found it to be really fun and interesting work and it definitely required a lot of planning okay how how did it work in the family right so what about your husband what was he his involvement in this and the children, you know, was it a family enterprise? It was definitely a family enterprise. And I think that this is really an important point, Sharon, actually. I mean, if, if you know, we often find that language can be a source of tension in a family mm. uh, and sort of almost like almost a competition between, you know, mama's language and papa's language. Um, and it's really important if the children see that there are family languages. So if there are multiple languages, that they are all family languages. Even if mama or papa don't speak each other's language, they can. there are still ways that they can support each other's languages. Okay. And so you mentioned how you made changes uh, in the sense of you made changes to your own language use. But what about changing the plan bilingualism is something very dynamic things change for many different reasons um and so that also holds for your family language plan you should be thinking about you know it's not something you write when you're pregnant or when the kid's just born and then uh, put it put it in a drawer or don't put it in a drawer do it and then leave it so what about you did you change things as you went along we did change things um, for the reason, the reason was, and this is a reason for a lot of families, is that we knew we were leaving the Netherlands. So by the time uh, baby number three came around, we were already thinking about leaving. And so, whereas with the first two, I was invested in them learning Dutch. Yeah. With the third one, I wasn't because I knew that we were on our way out. And so should there be a family language plan? for each child individually or is it one big plan with everybody in it no it's usually one big plan with anybody in it and if there is ever a big change like a move of country or a change of school uh, a change of school meaning that the language of instruction is going to change right or an additional child um, then you revisit the plan yeah and so I'm curious to know now if um, so you said you've recently moved uh, to Greece your children are yes. in French school. Are you going to yes. switch to English? No, but I have gotten much more relaxed on using 100% French. So uh -huh. whereas when they were in the British school, I was really careful about keeping my, my input only in French with them. Whereas here, of course, they're eight hours a day in school in French. And so I'm more relaxed about it. So now I, I'm much more easy about, I'm using both really now. Well, still mostly French because at this point our relationship is in French, um, mm -hmm. but I'm using a lot more English than I was, which is nice. It's nice that, that I don't have to be so, it's nice that I have help, let's say, with the, with the French input from the school. <laughs> yeah. And how, um, how are the children responding to that then? They are in a very, very multilingual school environment. So it's very natural for them, actually. Their school is, it really boasts, uh, boasts being trilingual. It's, and it, it is very much so. It's it's very much English, French, and Greek. And so for them, it's totally natural to mix all three. Yeah, yeah. And so do you think your children's bilingualism would have looked 
very different or multilingualism would have looked very different if you hadn't written such a family language plan? No, but absolutely. I wouldn't have known what to do. I, I think I would have made quite a few mistakes. It's not something I would have come up with on my own. So I think it would have it looked very, very different. And probably my kids would not have gotten to the level of French that they have now, which enabled them to join the, the Lycée Francais when we moved. And that wasn't even part of the plan initially, but it turned out to be a really huge benefit. Yeah, so so clearly it's the, the thinking about thinking about your situation, uh, being making informed decisions. You've embraced this really quite a lot, right? Because you're now actually working with AUN, right? Is that right? Yes, that's true. So actually, it's a funny story how it started. So as I said, I went back to AON every time I had a baby. About a year ago, she proposed to me and to Maria Potvin, um, our other partner at Raising Bilingual Children. She proposed to us that she actually hand over the baton to us. And that she stepped back a little bit because she's doing a lot of consulting with schools and she wanted to do a bit less with families. And so she she sort of gave the role of family language uh, advisor to me and to Maria about a year ago. Uh-huh. And so if you want to get in touch with you, we'll we'll put your details in the in the show notes in the description of the podcast. So if anybody's interested in finding out more about what you do, then they can get in touch with you, right? Yes, absolutely. We are we are available for very personalized um, family language plans, individual consultations with families. And what that involves is um, there are a few services we offer, but the most common one is a three-part package. The first consultation is 90 minutes in which we really talk about all of your languages, why they're important to you, which ones are priority. Um, the second part of the plan is this part of the package, excuse me, is this written plan, right? That we, we sort of go away after our conversation and make a written plan. And the third part is a follow-up session. So after the family has tried to implement the plan for a few months, they come back and we talk about, you know, any follow-up questions or how it went implementing the plan. Yeah, so if you want to write a uh, family language plan, then uh, people, of course, can get in touch with you. But of course, there's something you can also do by yourself, uh, using uh, the book uh, also you know find people in and around where you live uh, talk to family friends just actually thinking about what it is that you need to do the situation you're in what you want from your child's bilingualism is already a very good start um, thanks Stephanie for taking the time to talk to us today about uh, your experience writing a family language plan it's been really interesting to hear and I'm sure many people will recognize some of the challenges that you faced and be interested in the way that you have uh, embraced them. Thank you, Sharon. Let's get. So that's it for this episode of Klet's Heads. If you're interested in winning a copy of either of the two books we discussed today, and it's still July 2023 when you're listening to this, then head on over to our Insta page where you can find out how to do this. We'll be back in a month with an episode all about bilingualism and autism with French researcher Philippe Prévost. I'll share another Kletzhead quick and easy with you. And we'll hear from another Klet's Head of the Week, Spanish-English bilingual Gemma from New York. Until then. If you want to know more about Klet's Heads, go to our website at kletsheadspodcast.org. 
That's where you'll also find more information about this episode. If you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Clets Heads using your favourite podcast app. If you know someone else who might enjoy the podcast, then I'd really appreciate it if you would share it with them. You can do this via the website or in your podcast app. And if you're on social media, we'd love it if you followed us. Our handle is at Clets Heads. Thanks for listening and until the next time. Or as we say in Dutch, tot de volgende keer.